happen now? What needs to happen? Of course, the kids have to come up and sit. You remember every Sunday. You're always the very first one. When after we say the Lord's Prayer, then the kids come up. And every Sunday I open my eyes and there is Shane sitting there. And I'm very thankful because you're smart. Well, I thank you for being so smart and for being faithful and for remembering. I have a question for you people. If you guys want to come up, you're welcome to. You don't have to stay back there. But if you don't want to, it's okay. Okay. I have a question for you. Do you know that is uh, a piece of paper that Pastor Bob left when we had worship team practice earlier? So, do you guys, if I say the name King David, do you know who I'm talking about? No? You forgot. Who is he? He's a person who what? Who fought Goliath. Exactly. And he is known as the greatest king that Israel ever had. He's one of the ones that they hold up in high esteem. Well, do you know that King David was a man of prayer? Whenever he was upset, whenever he was sad, whenever he was lonely, whenever he was sick, whenever he wanted to pray for somebody else, he would always go before God. It literally says at times he would go right into the church and just sit in the, on the floor in front of the altar and just pray and pray and pray and pray. And one of the other things that King David did was he wrote his prayers out. He wrote them out. And we have them in the form of like songs, but they're called psalms. Can you say that word? Psalm. It's, it's spelled P-S-A-L-M. And there's a whole book in the Bible, a whole section of the Bible called the Psalms. The P is silent, exactly. And there's 150 different psalms. Now, King David didn't write all of them, but he wrote a lot of them. And one of the ones that he wrote that he's, that's most famous, uh, if you ask any person in the world, probably they've heard of this psalm before. They might have even read it themselves. It's called the 23rd Psalm. Have you ever heard that one before? Yes, you have, because it's in your classroom on a poster. I saw it. That's the one that says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you remember that one? Yes. You've been learning that one in your class? Well, you know what? When he says in that song, the Lord is my shepherd, what is he saying? That what? We're the that we're the sheep. And that God, the Lord, takes care of us and loves us and provides for us and nurtures us. But you know what? There's another psalm. That David wrote that I love even more than the 23rd Psalm. It's the 28th Psalm. And the particular verse in the 28th Psalm that I really, really like is this one. David wrote, The Lord is the strength of his people, he is the saving refuge. Of his anointed. What does the word refuge mean? Do you know? I don't know? The word refuge means a place to hide. So like if there's a bad storm happening, you go in some place where you can hide and be safe. Or maybe somebody's trying to hurt you and you go and you hide in some place safe. 
Um, if there's an earthquake, have you you know, in the, if there's an earthquake, you have to go. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Um, all animals chasing you. If there's an animal chasing you, you want to get where so, where you can be safe and not let the animals hurt you. Well, David said, "The Lord is my saving refuge, my place of safety." And you know, I want to teach you the Hebrew word that's this. This is the Hebrew word that's, that's translated saving refuge. It's Yeshua. Can you say that word? Yeshua Ma'uz. Ma'uz. Yeshua Ma'uz. Say that again. Yeshua Ma'uz. And it means the place where you can be safe. It's a, it's a hiding place, a refuge. And Jesus and, and David, King David said, the Lord is my strength and my, sa- my safe place where I can run and hide when I'm scared or when I'm in danger or when I need help. It's a place, it's God, I can come to God at all times. So David said, the Lord is my shepherd because God provides for us and gives us food and takes care of us and gives us clothing and all that. But he also said, I can trust God when things are bad. I can run to God and actually know that he'll take me care of me and protect me. Like Lillian, Lillian, if you had an animal that was being mean to you out in your garden and you ran to your mom, what would your mom do? Would she like grab you in her arms and pick you up and say, you're okay, it's okay. I've got you, you're okay. It's... Yeah, when you were a baby, she did. Well, that's what God, that's what King David is saying about God. When he calls God the Yeshua Ma'uz, he's saying God picks you up in his arms and says, it's okay, I've got you. It's okay, it's okay. Really? He thought when he was sleeping that he heard God talking to him? That is so cool. You know, God does that. God does talk to us when we dream sometimes, when we're asleep. Praise the Lord. I'm glad to know that Adrian, can, your brother, can hear God when he sleeps. Uh huh. Very cool. Well, I want to pray with you guys, and then you can go back to your class, okay? Jesus, I ask that you bless these kids and help them, Father, to understand and learn that not only are you a shepherd that provides and cares for them, but that you are indeed the Yeshua Moses, the place of safety. That whenever there's something going on in their life that they feel overwhelmed or frightened or scared or or in danger or anything, they can turn to you. And you will sweep them up in your arms and you will protect them and you'll keep them safe, Lord. I praise you, Father, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys can go back now, okay? Thank you. Thank you for listening. Truly, I'm not, I wasn't making that up just for the kids. Psalm 28.8 is one of my favorite, favorite images of what it means, um, of what God does for us and through us. Years ago, we were in a Bible study that uh, Ginny Abnett was leading, and she asked us, it was January 1st or sometime around that first week of January, and she said, what is the word for the year? What word has God given you that is a word for the year? And some people said hope, and some people said, you know, whatever. And this was the word that came to me. 
this rock that is a place of safety. I have an image of my, of my mind. I saw a picture of it once, and unfortunately, I can never find it ever again. I tried and tried and tried for months. It was a person sitting on like a cliff, looking out over this valley, but there was an outcropping of rock over top of them. So they were covered by this rock outcropping. So they were, it's kind of like the image of, of Elisha, of Elijah being put into the cleft of the rock and then God putting his hand over and saying, I've got you as God passes before. It just, that's the image that I have for, for this safe place that God is for me and um, speaks, speaks volumes to me. Anyway, we are in our study of First Samuel chapter 19 now. This one's not a fun chapter. Last week was fun. We got to talk about nice things and good things. This one's not so fun. Um, I want to read through it quickly. There's about 20, what, I, what was it, 27, 24 verses. So it won't take too long to read it. But it's important that we understand what's going on before we talk about it. So. Turn with me, 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1, and then we're actually going to read all the way through chapter 20, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all the servants, that they should kill David. Now, remember last week we talked about Jonathan and David having their soul knit together. So this was an incredibly distressing thing to have his father, the king, tell him that he had to kill this man that he loved. And remember it says, Jonathan said he loved David more than the love of women. Or David said he loved Jonathan more than the love of women. Their relationship was that tight. That brotherhood was that tight, soul to soul. So Saul, the king, says to Jonathan, the crown prince, and to all the servants, it's time to kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. Verse two, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in the secret place. Hide yourself. And I will go out and I'll stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And I will learn anything. I'm, and, and if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, Saul, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, David, because David has not sinned against you. And because his deeds had brought good to you, for he took his life in his hand, he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. You saw it. You rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore as the Lord lives. He shall not be put to death. Now, this is so frustrating because, again, we're not given a lot of information here. But we've talked about the fact that Saul has apparently got some type of a disorder, whether it's a mental disorder or whether it's a spiritual thing going on. But he vacillates back and forth from darkness to light, from hatred to love. And he can be he can be moved one way or the other. Sometimes it's by, quote unquote, an evil spirit from the Lord. Sometimes it's by his son talking to him. But it's like he bounces back and forth and back and forth. And imagine what it would be like if you were David in that court. 
trying to do your best to serve the king and to serve God and to constantly live under that kind of a threat of you never know what the thing, what the day is going to bring. So Jonathan talks to David, excuse me, Jonathan talks to Saul, Saul relents, Saul swears as the Lord lives, David shall not be put to death. Verse seven, Jonathan calls David. Apparently Saul has walked out of the field now and Jonathan stayed. Then Jonathan calls David out of his hiding place and Jonathan reports to him all of the things that just happened. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and David was in Saul's presence as before. So again, David, whose life has been threatened time and time and time again by this unstable man who is king, comes back into the court to again assume his duties and service to the king and to the nation and to God. Verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so they fled before him. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall and David fled and escaped that night. Now, let's stop here for just a second. I had, in my studies this week, I came across something I have never heard before. I don't know if you've ever heard of this or not, but, but there's a book that I have called Manners and Customs of the Bible. And what it is, it's a commentary. And what they do is they literally go verse by verse through the Bible. And if there's ever anything that is not part of our culture in Western modern civilization, but was germane to their culture, the author then explains what's going on in the scriptures so that we have a better understanding of what's going on. So in this chapter, I mean, in this verse, chapter 19, verse 10, it says that Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear. David eluded Saul so that the spear stuck into the wall and then David fled and escaped that night. And let me read to you the quote from this. Saul tried to pin David to the wall with his spear, a javelin. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. According to an ancient Asiatic custom, when a dart was thrown at a freed man and he escaped from it by flight, he was thereby absolved from all allegiance to his master. Thus, Saul, by his murderous fury, gave complete liberty to David, whose subsequent acts of war against the king could not be considered rebellion. From that hour forward, he was no longer a subject of King Saul. I have never heard that before. Can you imagine the freedom that David had in that moment? Because as I said, he has come to the court 
at the king's request. If you remember, Saul brought him to the court and said, you are to never go back and be a shepherd for your father's flock anymore. I need you in service of the king and the kingdom. And David said, of course, king, I will do whatever I can. But all the while, if you remember, David already knows that he was privately anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the next king. But never once has he tried to undermine the leadership and authority of Saul. He has aligned himself with Saul. He has been a faithful servant, courtier, and general in Saul's army. He has done the best that he can to bring honor to his king and to serve his king. And what does he get for it? He gets his life threatened time and time and time again. He gets spears thrown at him. And this wasn't the first time. If you you go back to chapter 18, we are told that Saul actually threw a spear at him. And now again, Saul has thrown a spear at him. But finally, David finally says, enough. I have been true. I have been honorable. I have served to the best of my ability. And you, sir, by your actions... And according to the culture in which we live, I am no longer beholding to you. We are done. And David leaves. Now, it's not said there. Unfortunately, we don't have that in scriptures. But according to what the culture was, apparently, he had broken finally with Saul. Okay, so we are now verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him so that he might kill him in the morning. So apparently David left the court and went home. I cannot imagine what's going on in his living room, in his house, because we're not given that. But if you were to imagine with me, try to figure this, this guy, his, his, his adrenaline is probably really high and flowing right now. Michael, you will not understand what just happened. I was just in your father. He threw a spear. I go, I'm done. I'm done. I am no longer. Oh, and I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I don't know where we're going to go, but we got to get out of here. And all of a sudden, his wife says to him, David's wife told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. See, they had surrounded his house, apparently. So he had to get out surreptitiously in the middle of the night to save his own neck. And Michael took an image. I hate this verse. She took a statue, an image, which was against the Mosaic law. But she took an image that was in their house and she laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes and when uh, the bed clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, this was in the morning, okay? Because Saul had said, surround his house, don't let him escape, and we're going to take him in the morning. So they came in the morning and she said, oh, he's sick. He's in bed sick. So verse 15, then Saul sent messengers to see David saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. What a sick man. If he's so sick, he can't get in the bed, then pick up the bed and bring it here that I could just kill him while he's laying in his bed. And when the messengers came in, behold, 
they found the image in the bed and the pillow of goat's hair (coughs) in its head. Saul then said to Michael, why have you deceived me and thus said, and thus, thus, and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, oh, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, that was a lie. I can't explain. I can't justify her lie. But this is what happened. Verse 18. Now, David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Where else would he go? Where else would David go? He had no place to go. He couldn't go back to his father's house. But Samuel, he knew, was on his side. Samuel, of all people, knew about the anointing that Samuel had done. So David runs to Samuel and he's like, Samuel, I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to do the best I can. And finally, he has tried to kill me by throwing a spear through me in, in cold blood. And Samuel's like, come in, come in, come in. So they, so David comes to Ramah and uh, David fled and escaped. He came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done. He and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. Now, Naoth is a Hebrew word that's just transliterated here into English. Naoth means tents, dwellings. So what scholars believe this was, was that in the village of Ramah, where Samuel had his normal abode, there was a school of prophets. And these tents or dwelling places were where the students of Samuel lived. So David was brought by Samuel into the school of prophets, to the Naoth, the place of dwelling. And that's where he was hiding from Saul. Because again, where would Saul think to look for David? He'd go to Samuel. He'd go to Samuel's house. So it wasn't wise for David to hide in Samuel's house, but he was under Saul's, Samuel's protection in the Naoth, because Samuel was the headmaster, if you will, of the school of prophets. And so David is hiding out in the Naoth in the village of Ramah, and we don't know how long he's there. We don't know if it's a day or a week or a month. We don't know. We're not given that. But what we do know, David by his nature is a man of prayer. What we do know, when David is in great distress, he turns to God. What we do know is that when David is in great distress and turns to God and prays, he records his prayers. So if you'll turn with me to Psalm 59... You will read his prayer that he wrote while he was in Naoth, in Ramah, hiding from King Saul. Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, 
Come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they don't get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Whew. Do you hear the distress that this man is under? He has tried to live the right way. He has tried to do the good things. He has tried to bring honor to the people above him, to the nation that he's serving, and to the God whom he loves. And all he receives in return is death threats and torment and insecurity. And he has no place to turn. He's literally hiding in a tent city. And he turns to the only one that he can turn to who he knows has his back. And he declares, I rest in your steadfast love for you are a fortress for me, a place of safety, a place of refuge. Now let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Verse 20. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. <laughs> And then he himself went to Ramah and he came to the great well that is in the Sekiu and he asked, where is Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at the Naoth in Ramah. And Saul went there to Naoth in Ramah and the spirit of God came upon him also 
And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day and all the night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? <laughs> now, again, understanding their culture, when they say someone was naked, they weren't bare skinned. Okay. They took off their outer cloaks and all they had was their tunic on. Okay, they were in their underwear, if you will. Okay, and that happens over and over and over again throughout scripture. Isaiah did it. You, you read a story where, where the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is on the, on the beach making a fish breakfast. And it says that Peter, who was naked, threw on his outer garment and swam. He wasn't naked. He had his, his, his underwear on. He was working that night. But then he took his outer garment and put it on so he could go to the beach. Okay, so Saul didn't walk around naked with, this, with all, the, all the prophets. All of his messengers, everybody, they took off their armor, they took off their cloaks, they took off their regalia, and they were in their underwear, worshiping and praising God. Now, again, we don't know what the word prophesied means. Um, you know, there are some scholars will say that it was indeed prophecy. Some people were saying it was just worship. Some people were saying, but what was happening? And this was something that scholars are 100% convinced of. Have you ever heard the term trance? We talked about it on Wednesday night at Bible study. Have you ever heard the term slain in the spirit? Okay. That's what was happening here. The power of God, the presence of God, the spirit of God came on these people and they just became limp, if you will. And in their, in their adoration and worship and overwhelmed by the presence of God and they couldn't do anything. That's what was happening. The thing that's intriguing about all of this is what did David say in Psalm 59? God, don't kill him. Just show them you're God. Mm. And that's what God did. He answered David's prayer. God didn't kill any of them. He just overwhelmed them with his presence and his power and his love. Now, let me share with you a personal story. In 1989, no, excuse me, 1987, I was notified by the United States Air Force. We were living in the Philippines. I was getting ready to get out of the military in a very short while and head back to go to college and get my degree so I could go to seminary and become a pastor. And I got notified by the Air Force that the Air Force was going through a reduction in force. And I said, so what does that mean to me? Well, that means that the career field you're in is overmanned and we have to, you have to get some of you to volunteer to, to voluntarily get out or to voluntarily retrain into another career field. And I said, so what happens if I retrain into another career field? They said, well, you have to give at least a minimum of one year's service following the end of your school. Well, how long is the school? It's about six weeks. So you're talking about I have to do 13 and a half months after, after leaving the Philippines? Yeah. So I could either separate at port when I arrive in San Francisco and then have no job and no support and no place to live, or the government will move me back to the United States, retrain me for six weeks, and I owe them 12 months. That sounds like a really good deal. So I went ahead and signed up for the retraining, and I became what was called a personal affairs specialist. It was a person who worked in personnel, and my job was to... Anything and everything that they didn't know what to do with in personnel, it went into the personal affairs office. 
It was, I mean, dress and personal appearance, leave policy, TDY policy, casualty assistance, military member dies, you have to assist the family. I mean, we did a little bit of everything. The, the, the annuity program that the government offers to retirees, we were the ones doing the briefing. VA benefits, we had to do all that. So we, we had a little hodgepodge office. So I graduated from, from, from the, the class after six weeks, and I was at Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi where the training was held, and I got notified about a week before the class ended that I was being assigned to the personal affairs office in, at Keesler Air Force Base in the personnel office there. Okay, so Renee and the girls who had been staying with Renee's parents came and joined me in Mississippi and we set up our life there for a year in, um, in uh, Mississippi. And I will tell you that the personal affairs office, and I'll tell you more about that in just a second, but the personal affairs office was the largest personal affairs office in the Air Force. So here I am, a brand new, uh, brand new person, just graduated from school, don't know nothing but what was in the book, and now I'm in charge of this office. <sighs> That's scary. Well, then, give it about, this was September time frame, give it about to like February, March, the Air Force comes back and says, we have too many people in the Air Force, you have to get out now. Or you have to re-enlist now. Re-enlist is four years. What? We just happened to be having a revival at our church in Gulfport, Mississippi that week. The man who was the preacher was a retired district superintendent in the Church of the Nazarene. And after a service one night while we're having coffee and cake or whatever in the fellowship hall, I, I said, can I talk to you for a few minutes? He goes, yeah. And I explained to him everything that I just told you. And I said, what would you advise? And he said, oh, you don't want to hear what I want to say. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, I do. He said, no, you don't want to hear this. Because you won't listen to me. I said, no, I really do. What, what, what would you say? He said, I would tell you to re-enlist. What? I would tell you, not only to re-enlist, but I would tell you to stay on active duty for the complete 20 years. What? I'm called to be a pastor. I understand that. But as a district superintendent, you as a candidate to the pastoral role, someone who has 20 years service with the United States Air Force, who has a pension from the Air Force, who has medical benefits from the Air Force, I could place you in a little podunk town in the middle of nowhere that couldn't afford a pastor. <laughs> And you can help grow that church because they can't afford you, but you could stay there for a long time and help that church to grow and succeed. I don't like your words. <laughs> but as we prayed, my wife and I, this indeed seemed to be the plan that God had for us. And so I went to the Air Force and said, I'll sign up for four more years. And, and we indeed stayed for 21 years, and then God took me through Bible college, and then I moved here 20 years ago, and I have been here ever since. And exactly what that man spoke over me is what exactly happened here. But that's not the story. The story is I was at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. I had just been assigned to this biggest Air Force personal affairs office in the Air Force, and I was brought into the boss's office. She was a chief master sergeant in E9. I was in E5 at the time. And she was, and then the, the major was also a female, and the two of them ran the whole personnel office. And I was brought into their offices in my first week and given a briefing. The person that you are replacing was fired less than two months ago. 
That person trashed that office. The, the morale in that office is bad. The, the camaraderie in that office is bad. The people are poorly trained. There is division. There is pain. There is heartache. And the woman literally, the E9, literally gave me a personality inventory of each individual person in that office. Telling me exactly what their struggles were and what their needs were. And I was going... <sighs> and I was to become... The leader of this group. Pastor. Pastor of this group. God knew what God was doing. And I spent a long time, over a year, year and a half, working to develop a cohesive team. Helping people to feel safe with each other. I had to establish awards in our office. I went to a trophy shop and I got a little baby bottle with a rubber nipple and a little brass plate at the bottom that said the crybaby award. <laughs> and I got po popsicle sticks from the craft store and I fashioned a little outhouse. And in a magic marker I wrote ye old potty mouth award. And they sat on a filing cabinet in our office. And if you got caught swearing, whoever caught you would go over and pick up that cry, the, the potty mouth award and plop it down on your desk. And it stayed there until you caught someone else swearing. <laughs> and at the end of the week, whoever had it on their desk had to drop a dollar in the donut box. <laughs> and these people fought. I don't want that. Because the rule was, if somebody comes in and says, what in the world is that? You have to tell them why it's on your desk. <laughs> the Crybaby Award was the same thing. If you get caught whining, fussing, or complaining for any reason whatsoever, whoever catches you puts it on their desk, and it stays there till you catch somebody, and it never gets put back on the filing cabinet. It just goes from desk to desk to desk to desk. I still have both of those trophies over in my closet, if you want to see it. But... Um, the nipple's all brown and hard now because it was, it was horrible. But, but there was one woman in the office. Her name was Joanne. She was a civilian employee. She was about 35. No, she was about 38 years old when I first started there. Um, <clears throat> she never complained. She was the sweetest individual. She's so kind, so calm, so relaxed. Such a nice person. It was Friday afternoon. We were getting off work in about five minutes. And in the military, you understand, you, you shut up shop 15 minutes before the day actually ends. Because, you know, you have to be ready to go out the door when the day ends. So we're all just sitting around waiting for the clock to sit, hit the, the time. And Joanne, without even thinking about it, goes, oh, I don't want to go home and cook tonight. A bunch of boom! I wasn't complaining! I wasn't complaining! Yes, you were, but it wasn't work-related! I don't care. You were at work, and it was duty hours, and you were whining. Now, I worked long and hard developing a good team, creating a good climate to work in. One of the reasons for both of those awards was we dealt with widows. We had widows coming into our office every day, and they didn't need to hear that garbage. They didn't need to hear the foul language. These women had just lost their spouses, and we were supposed to be ministering to them. That was part of our role. So I was making a climate that was healthy, Good team, enjoyed. I mean, God has gifted me. That's what I do. This is some of the things that is just natural to who I am as a person and as a Christian. Then the military has a program called CHAP. 
Children have a potential. It may have changed since then. It's been 20 some years since I was in the military. But back then, the Children Have a Potential program was in place that said, if a military member has a child in their household that has a special need, then the military will do all they can to assign that military member to a base that has the resources to meet that need of that child. Okay? So there was a couple, both active duty, who, I won't tell you their name. Yes, I will. His name was David. But anyway, I won't go any farther than that. Um, they got assigned to our base because they had a special need infant. And our base was only one of two bases in the world that could su- supply the need, the medical need for that baby. So David just happens to be a tech sergeant, same rank as me, in the personal affairs career field, same career as me. And we only have one slot in our office for a tech sergeant, and that's the one I'm filling. So the bosses pull me into their office and explain what's going on. And they say, you have done a phenomenal job and we don't want to lose you or the team you've built. So we are going to create another position within this department. He will report directly to your boss. You two will be peers and you'll report to the boss over this section. He is not your boss, you are peers, okay? She's the chief, the boss is, he's the assistant chief, you're the NCOIC, non-commissioned officer in charge of the personal affairs office, okay? David comes in to meet everybody. What the hell is that? Excuse me, potty mouth award. I don't give a blankety blank blank about potty mouth. He outranks me. I can't talk him down in, and he's just, bah, bah, bah. well, I, to make a long story short, David wanted my job. He recognized that he had just been set aside and that this was really the role that, were, that it was supposed to be his. And he spent the next year doing everything he could to undermine me. And it got to the point, finally, where we were getting ready for a major inspection. And the bosses, the major and the chief master sergeant called me into my office, their office and they said, Bob, we have a special project we need you to work on. We want you to develop a self-help desk for the customer service area where there are forms and it's all self-guided so that we can save on our man hours. And what we're gonna do is while you're doing this process for the next six to eight weeks before the inspection, we're gonna have David take over to oversee your shop and then you're gonna do this. And then when the inspection's over with, we're gonna go go back to it. Okay, stupid. So we did and we got an excellent rating on our inspection. And they cited my work, superb. And then I was moved back to the personal affairs office under David. And my life became a living. And if you look at my military record from 1977 until 1998, my evaluations were top, 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 not so great, top, 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 top. Not so great was the one report that David wrote on me. He also did not put me in 
for a decoration of metal at the end of my service in that place. Even though I got a superb on the special project that they put me in. Even though I brought a, a, a floundering organization into really good, cohesive team, I did not get recognized for my work because David was threatened by me. And as a result, I didn't get the promotion and I didn't get the medal. I mean, I didn't get promoted for another two years because of those poor marks. It cost me promotion points. So this man stole money from my family. He stole prestige from me. He undermined me. He stole my job. And the whole while I would go home and say, Michael, Michael, Renee, Renee. And she'd go, trust God. <laughs> He's your refuge. Trust God. God sees all that's going on. Trust God. Shut up. <laughs> Seriously. True? Not true. True. So finally, I get reassigned. Oh, one last thing. While I was at that job, I had an additional duty of being the facility manager for this huge building that we were in. And the building was owned by Lieutenant Colonel George Long. He was the commander over the organization. It was his building, and I entered directly to him in this one capacity. Okay? Now, fast forward. I get reassigned from Keesler Air Force Base to RAF Bentwaters in England. We arrive in England on Tuesday. On Friday, Desert Storm breaks out. The following week, on Tuesday or Wednesday, I just happen to be in uniform because I'm doing some in-processing, but I haven't fully started my job yet. I happen to walk into my office and my new boss says, oh great, you're here, come with us. Why, what, what? Come on, we're gonna go brief the wing commander and his entire staff on, on the casualty assistance program. Okay, so my commander, my flight commander, my immediate supervisor, me, and one person who is under me Five of us walking to the wing king's office. Well, you don't know the term wing king. He's, the, he, he's in charge of the entire base. He's, he has a cabinet of people who work with him on administering this entire, running the whole base. It's like the mayor or the governor. Okay, so I get in there and the king, the wing king says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. We're going to have to hold off for a little bit. We're running, uh, my, the base commander is running a little bit behind. He'll be here shortly. So we're all sitting down at the end in the seats reserved for the speakers who are going to be presenting to. Oh, and by the way, I'm presenting. I haven't even been on that base a week, but I'm the one designated. I said, well, where's the script? Oh, just wing it. What? So we're waiting. Finally, the base commander walks in, goes down to his seat right next to the wing king, sets his stuff down and says, excuse me, sir, just a second. And Colonel George Long, the base commander comes down to me and stands in front of me and puts his hand out and says, Bob, I heard you were coming. I'm thrilled to have you on our team. Join us. And they went and sat down. And I was like, <sighs> and I went home and I told my wife and she said, see? <laughs> Fast forward even further. We had a death happening. Our legal officer had been hit by a car. He was brain dead. He was in the hospital. His wife has to make a decision on whether or not to pull the plug with him as an active duty person, as a retiree. And it's my job to brief her so that she can make a positive decision. A general's plane was held on the tarmac at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany so that 
someone in my chain of command at the headquarters level could get on that plane and fly to our base to oversee me doing my job to this wife, to this widow, because this guy had friends in high places. This was a big wig on our base, and he had he, he was supposed to be going places in his career until this death thing happened. So literally, a general's plane is held up, this guy from headquarters flies to oversee me, and then they make the decision, we, my commander, my flight commander, me, this guy from headquarters, all have to get on a, a telephone call with headquarters of the United States Air Forces in San Antonio, Texas, to talk with the casualty person there who runs the casualty program for the entire Air Force. And so we're, we're in the briefing room, the telephone call is made, the commander is talking with the woman, her name was Pat Peak, and the commander says, I want us to go ahead around and introduce ourselves to you, Pat, so you'll know who you're talking to. And so the colonel did, and then the light colonel did, and then the captain did, and then the senior master sergeant from headquarters did, and then I introduced myself, and I said, hi, Pat, this is Bob Sugden, and she said, Bob, I didn't know you were in England, I thought you were still in Mississippi. No, I, I just moved here a few months ago. She said, oh, Colonel, listen, you don't have anything to worry about. Bob Sugden is the best NCO in casualty in the Air Force bar none. Don't worry about him at all. And I went home and I told my wife and she said, you see? God's got you. And I ended up that time in, in my career with one of the highest honors that I could receive. I have way more I could tell you. There's lots and lots that happened to me. I was placed in honor after honor after honor after honor. And it was all because Jesus is my Yeshua Maus. I had an enemy who was trying to destroy me. And I had to do what was right and honorable and gave glory to God. I couldn't fight back. There was, it was inappropriate for me to fight back. I simply had to endure. But as I continued to bring my case before the Father, he ultimately brought restoration and honor and beyond anything I could have imagined. And the promise that you have is the same God that did that for me is the same God that can and will do that for you. You may not have a king who wants to throw a spear at you to kill you, but you have people in your life who are trying to make life miserable for you or who don't like you or literally maybe even pronouncing curses over you. But if you will turn to the father and recognize he's not just your shepherd who provides for all of your needs, but he is your resource and your refuge and your strength. And he loves you and he wants what's best for you. And in the same way he did it for David, and in the same way he did it for Pastor Bob, he will and can do it for you. You just have to ask. Let's pray. God, thank you. Time and time and time and time again through the 50 plus years that I have served you. You've proven yourself over and over and over again that you are faithful, that you've got my back, that you love me, that you will, comprise, will provide for me, that you can provide for me, that you do things beyond my expectation or exceeding anything I could ever dream up. And I give you praise for all of it. And I ask God you would do the same for every one of these people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. David, come on up.